Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. While you are turning, I'm going to go off script here. So, um, Nathan said something. I've started, started a lot of conversations like that over the years. Nathan said something um, after the choir special that I want to touch on for just a moment. Um, he said, songs like that could kill a man. And he's right, I suppose. Um, I don't know how he held that last note as long as he did, but I did not. I was dead about, uh, I don't know how many beats it was supposed to be, but somewhere around six, I, I stopped. My voice was done. need a bigger breath. I think he's just bigger than I am, so he's got more volume to take in those, those breaths. But... Um, but he said songs like that could kill a man, and everyone chuckled. But I want to express at the beginning of uh, the service this morning, our, our time in the Word, I want to express uh, my feelings um, about singing in general. And um, I will tell you that songs like that are, are worth dying for. There are songs that are worth dying for. There are songs that are worth singing, regardless of the, of the cost. Um, my dad uh, grew up in a in a fairly sizable uh, Baptist church in uh, Vandalia, Ohio. And uh, he grew up kind of in and out of church. Um, I think uh, there was a time when they went for a little while um, when my grandfather was clearly not a believer. And, um, and then, you know, they went when they were kids like a lot of people do. And then as they got to, to early teens, um, you know, his dad, you know, stopped coming and was not a part of it, um, had not really been much of a participant when they were going. And then something happened uh, in my dad's late teenage years. Um, his father got saved, truly saved, truly gave his life uh, to the Lord Jesus, and not just a profession of faith, but, but uh, his life was genuinely changed and started to go back to church. And uh, my dad, um, of course, heard, you know, his, his you know, dad's statements and, and everything, and okay. But um, the testimony that I remember from my father, and this is what stuck through me, with me through the years, was he knew when his dad um, actually got saved because he could hear him singing in the worship service, and he'd never heard him sing before. He'd never heard him sing before. And he said that his dad was not a very good singer, and uh, he would he would be flat or in or out of the notes, and um, but he didn't seem to bother his father at all. A man who never sang in church was all of a sudden uh, singing uh, wholeheartedly in church, and of course that wasn't the only change. Uh, pretty soon he was teaching a, a fifth grade Sunday school class. A man who had not expressed any great desire to be around children. Period uh, was was voluntarily sitting in and not doing much teaching but assisting in a fifth grade class and bringing candy for the kids and trying to encourage them and just a, a life uh, undeniably changed. But my father, as a, as a young man's first recollection of that, was that um, his dad would sing. Now, we don't live in a singing culture anymore. Um, that might be a strange thing to hear, but there were there was a time not long ago, uh, even in American culture, where singing was was normal. At sporting events, uh, on the job site, uh, in cars, singing was normalized and, and people sang. Um, but we don't live in a culture like that anymore. Uh, we do live in a musical culture, but it's all performance. Um, the music in our culture is all performance. Um, you know, we, we have television shows about, you know, music competitions where people are performing, and it's all about judging the performance, how good was the song, how well was it sung, how was the rest of the appearance besides the song, and then I guess there are other shows where I presume, because I, I, I don't watch these, but I presume by the name of the show that, that it's kind of meant to, okay, be just about the singing and not about the or another, but it's all performance culture. And I don't really have one thing or another to say about that, except it doesn't much interest me. Um, 
But I think as Christians, we need to have a conviction that um, the world's culture will not be our culture and that we will not be a people sold out to the world's culture or we will not have our behavioral patterns dictated so obviously to us by the culture of the world around us. And when we gather together to worship God, I don't care if it's the strangest thing in the world, literally. You know, I don't care if, if the culture of this world thinks it is totally absurd. We need to be a culture that uh, acknowledges our privilege in worshiping God in song because he requires it. He requires worship from his people. He requires praise from his people. And I know that when, when you sing, there's always the question of, well, what's the performance going to be like? What's the person next to me going to hear? What's the person in front of me going to think? I'm telling you, you need to let that go. Because we are singing for one person only, and it is not the person in front of you or behind you. And if I am going to be... I, I, this is easy for me to say in a sense because I resolved this a long time ago. If I am going to be made fun of for singing as loudly as I can to worship God, I am okay with that. That is a sword I'm willing to die on. Um, I will have the last laugh in that joke um, because I have a heavenly father. Um, and I will sing wholeheartedly in the manliest voice that I can, even high notes, the manliest voice I can because I, I, am, a, a, I am a person of God. My allegiance lies here. Um, and, and I don't care who knows, I don't care if I get made fun of it, I, I will be a person who praises God. I don't care how ridiculous anybody else thinks it sounds or seems. And I just, you know, I don't say that as a judgment against any of you, and obviously it's a weird spot for me because I stand up front, but I, I do say it as a pastoral concern. You should sing if you believe these things, and if you are a person of God, you should sing. You should join with God's people and sing. And even if it sounds terrible, you should sing. Uh, so I say this as an as a encouragement, I hope, but also just to lay out what I think are the, are the clear expectations of gathering together in worship. And I know it's a barrier. I'm not trying to humiliate anybody. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. I'm not saying you should sing with a microphone up here on the stage. That's not what I'm saying. But you should sing to God. You should join in praise and not care what, what anyone else thinks. That's hard to do, right? But I would encourage you that we overcome things like that that are difficult all the time in our lives. We don't have a choice. We overcome things like that all the time. Uh, things that are awkward and uncomfortable at first, whether it's at work or in our families or in society. And it's just like, hey, it doesn't matter, man. You need to do this. Okay, <laughs> so if that applies when I clock into work, it should apply when I serve the Lord and when I worship Him. So that's my off-script plea. Um, thank you, Nathan, for unwittingly providing me the segue into it. Um, again, no judgment from me. I'm not upset with anyone. I'm trying to encourage you. If you're going to get laughed at or if you're going to feel uncomfortable, let it be getting laughed at or felt uncomfortable for publicly worshiping the one true living God. That's okay. All right. Philippians chapter 1. Um, today we're going to read more than half a verse, more than one verse. I'm sure many of you will be relieved that we are making progress finally in this book that I'm dragging my feet slowly around. I'm trying to make a whole career out of the book of Philippians, aren't I? But um, we are going to move through it just a little bit further today. Verses, brace yourselves, 8 through 11. Wow, I am really carving out sections here one by one. Philippians Chapter 1, 8 through 11, but let's start by reading in verse 3 and then reading all the way through 11. Then we'll pick five different stopping points through verses 8 through 11. I know, it's always bad when I've got more stopping points than verses to cover, but we will, uh, we will persist together. Verse 3, Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, 
because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You all are partakers with me of grace. That's all covered ground. Now verse 8. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So, verses 8 through 11, we're going to pick some stopping points. The first thing I'll draw your attention to in verse 8 is something that stood out to me when I read the text. Notice how verse 8 begins. For God is my witness. Interesting to me that Paul would basically swear an oath in the chapter and verse here. He is calling God to be his judge, God to be his witness. If what he's saying isn't true... Now, when we swear an oath, we are doing it to try to convince someone or some people of something that we think they might not be convinced of just by saying it. In other words, we use this kind of language when we think there's, there's some possibility that we might not be judged honest in what we're getting ready to say. And... Does the Holy Spirit, who inspired the text, want us to witness in Paul his need to promise the Philippians that he missed them? I think that's interesting. In other words, Paul is writing a letter, and in the course of writing the letter, he writes, God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So the statement he's saying is, I greatly long to be with you. I greatly long for you all with the affection of Jesus. And before that, he makes the statement, God is my witness. Now, even though Paul is writing in his own words, we can't simply dismiss this as Paul writing in his own words. We believe the Bible is inspired by the Spirit of God, that what's in the Bible is in the Bible for a reason, that there's purpose in what's there. So this is not mere human language. Some of us talk this way. You know, we'll say, you know, I promise this, or I promise that, or I swear this, or I swear that. Or... But that's not merely what's happening here. What this, this promise here is an indication to me that there is something in Paul's intentions and in his communication that God would have us bear witness to. And again, the promise is, I greatly long for you all with affection. What does the Holy Spirit of God expect us to recognize of this in the verse? And I would say, God knows that we are more fragile than we care to admit. In other words, Paul seems to be at least somewhat concerned or at least interested in alleviating any concerns on the Philippians' part that maybe he doesn't really care about us. It had been a while since Paul had been to Philippi. Philippi, he didn't have the greatest experience there. Anyway, we read that in the book of Acts. Um, they were not among the most prosperous of churches and places, if all the commentary and historical evidence is to be believed. Um, there's even mention throughout the letter of how they gave so much, even though they themselves maybe we're not the most prosperous of people. Is it possible that the Philippians might have doubted Paul's care for them? Um, that they would have read this language from Paul, hey, I really, really wish I was with you guys. And heard that as, well, that's just a nice thing to say. You ever had that happen before in your life? Have you ever? Of course you have. You've had somebody say something to you that sounds like a nice thing to say. Hey, I really love you, or hey, I really miss you, or hey, let's get together sometime, or hey. But while you acknowledge that's a nice thing to say, internally, 
Because you know what it is to be a man, you know what it is to be a woman, you know what it is to be flawed, and don't want to say the right thing even though you don't necessarily mean the right thing. Internally you wonder, is that how they really feel? And again, I think here, God knows that we are fragile people, and he is demonstrating here Paul's attempt to deal with fragile people, with a church that is removed from him, that he cares about, that might not be so easily persuaded that he truly did wish he was with him. And he does. Um, at least some part of Paul is uncertain that they will believe that. Um, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians. Just quickly here, we just want to read a few verses. This is not the only place we see this language from Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Now the context in the Corinthian church is a little different. Their situation is different. In the Corinthian church, they've had a lot of big problems. And they've not been an easy church for Paul to, to deal with. And I mean big problems, I mean big problems. Problems about what they believe. Problems about what they allow. Problems about the conduct when they gather together. I mean, we just finished not long ago, 1 Corinthians as a letter that we went through. A lot of problems. A lot of problems. And you find this language there too. Verse 23, this is in the follow-up letter, Paul writing, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul. Sound familiar? That to spare you, I came no more from Corinth. It's the same, same issue. In other words, he's saying, The reason that I have not visited you is not because I didn't want to be with you. It's not because I don't love you, and I'm worried that you've interpreted it that way. The reason I've not come and visited Corinth is because I knew what the visit would be like if I showed up and all these problems were still going on, and I knew that that would be a very painful and difficult thing, so I wrote the letter instead. I sent messengers instead, and I asked for you to deal with this stuff prior to my visit, and I promise you, me not coming is not about me not loving you or caring for you. Me not coming was to spare you. Look at what he says. Not that we have dominion over your faith. Not that this is some cult and I show up and everybody's got to do everything I say. That's what he's saying. But we are fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. It's not going to show up again and have everybody sad and upset and hurt that I was there saying these things. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who's made sorrowful by me? In other words, your church and what God is doing makes me happy, and yet I show up and I just make everybody sad. So I didn't want to come and do that. He says, verse 3, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. <laughs> I, I genuinely love and want to, want to have joy in all of you. It's not, you know, I, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. That's what he's concerned about in Corinth and in Philippi. Um, it is human to want to be liked. It's very human to want to be liked. But it is Christian to want others to be assured of your love for them. It's human to want to be liked, but when you love people with the love of Jesus, it's Christian to want other people to be sure of that love. And Paul wants them to be sure of that. These are two wildly different scenarios. Philippi, it's nothing but joy whenever he thinks of them. Corinth, it's nothing but pain whenever he shows up. But the desire on Paul's part is the same in both scenarios. Swears an oath in both as God is my witness. I want you to know that I love you and I, I care about you. 
Um, I think there probably is something owed here to the acknowledgement that Paul was an apostle. And I think when you are in kind of a leadership position, this is particularly challenging um, because leaders sometimes have to say or do things that are uncomfortable. And Paul, especially in Corinth, is no doubt doing this. And you probably had experiences like this. Whether you're a leader on a team or in an organization or in a business or even in your home where you have to deal with difficult things and the realities of the world, even if you're not dealing with difficult things inside the unit and things that you wish they didn't take you away. The realities of the world take you away from obligations and things that you wish they didn't take you away from. And so you're just not there sometimes to do everything that you wish you could do or say everything that you wish you could say. And I think those are the two scenarios in both of these letters. On one in Corinth, Paul's had to say some very difficult things about what's going on in the church unit. And in the other, he's just not there. The realities of his position have taken him away. And, and maybe there's a concern here that his absence is breeding the thought, well, maybe he doesn't care about us the same way that he cares about other places. But as a leader especially a Christian leader, Paul is concerned that the people that he is leading in some way, as an apostle here, are assured and convinced and believe him when he says, I love you and I have great affection for you and I wish that I was with you. I don't... So again, I'll say it. I think it is very human to be liked, but I think it is very Christian, to want others to be assured that you love them with the love of Jesus. And I would ask a question before moving on to the next stopping point. Is it in your mind to be sure that your church knows that you love them? I think it should be. Is it in your mind to, to do what's in your power to be sure that the people who are in your local church know that you love them, that, that you care for them. Um, it was in Paul's mind that these people in these places would know. That. I'll say it's in my mind. Um, I think about these things. I'm sure many of you do too. I think it is Christian to not merely think of your love that you owe to other believers as an obligation to be met, but to think of how that love is being demonstrated in the lives of the people around you and to ask yourself the question, hey, I wonder, am I doing what I should so that this person knows that I love them and I care about them? Some of it may be as simple as saying it. Sometimes it might go beyond saying it. It might be a visit or a phone call. It might be a note or a card. Um, it should be on your mind, not merely that you know you're excused in your own heart because you do love brothers and sisters in Christ, but do they know it? And if they don't, is it because there's been no effort on your part there? Because sometimes you can make every effort and someone doesn't believe you. That happens. That's legitimate. I'm not trying to say it's your responsibility to go around convincing everyone that you love them. That's not what I mean. But it should be a part of the way that you conduct yourself in Christian fellowship to ask, am I demonstrating the love of Jesus that I have? for the body of Christ. Um, I think Paul was concerned that they know this. Second thing I'll observe here in verse 9. Um, verse 9, I'll just read it. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So just a real short and sweet observation here is the second one. Um, a Christian's love should always be growing. He's saying here, this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. In other words, now I, we're going to deal with the second half of the verse in a second, but it's worth stopping and pointing out that a Christian should be growing in love. And for this, I would cross-reference you to Romans 13, 8, which is, for lack of a better description, the Dave Ramsey verse. Some chuckles. I don't know if you know it or not, but this is the Dave Ramsey verse, right? This is the... Well, one of the Dave Ramsey verses, you know, he's got a few. This is the, oh, no man, anything. But do you, you remember what the second part of the verse says? Oh, no man, anything but love. 
except love, right? And there's the sense that it doesn't matter how much I love, you know, Caleb, or how much I love Garrett, or I go around the room and do that with everyone. It doesn't matter how much I love them yesterday, how much I love them today. Tomorrow when I wake up, there will still be a debt that should be paid, a debt of love. In other words, I never reach the point where I'm like, okay, I have loved that person enough. That's good. You know, that person's taken care of, moving on. Done what I was supposed to do there, check mark. No, no. It's the idea of there is a debt of love that is continually owed throughout life to all men. So short point, but if I were to ask the second question, do you love enough? Just so you know, the answer is no, okay? So, you know, if by enough we mean, is it satisfactory and we're done growing in this? No, the answer is no, okay? Um, we need to continue to grow in this, which brings me to the third stopping point in the text. As we're growing in love, there are parameters that Paul seeks to put around our love, which I got to tell you, that is very countercultural today, right? We live in the culture of there basically shouldn't be any parameters around love. You know, you, love is the word used to describe a kind of carte blanche approval to everything in the world and everyone in the world around us. But in other words, if, if you are critical of anyone or anything, that's just not a loving thing to say. That's the world's cultural idea of the day. But Paul would put parameters around this. Look at verse 9. That your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge and discernment. Those are not words we usually put with the word love. What kind of, what kind of things in life, I had fun thinking about this, would you put the words knowledge and discernment as prerequisites for? What kind of areas in your life where if you were giving counsel to somebody, you would say, hey, you know, when you get to this topic, when you get to this subject, make sure that you are dealing with it in knowledge and all discernment. We know what knowledge is, I think. Knowing. Discernment is the application of what we know to the situation that we're in. And usually... When we use that kind of language, we're talking about something pretty serious. We're talking about something that might even be pretty dangerous. Um, for instance, how should you invest your money? With knowledge and all discernment. That's how you should invest your money. Um, I don't think you should invest your money by just pulling up the stock ticker and spinning the prices right wheel on it. And, and it's just, which stock do I want? That one, that's the one. Whatever X-I-O-W stands for, that's what I'm buying. When we talk about investing our money, because we know the implications of the future, we say, hey, knowledge and discernment are prerequisites. And a lot of us say, maybe I shouldn't even be the person making these decisions. I, you know, I should, you know, I'm willing to actually pay a lot of money to have someone with knowledge who has exercised discernment help me out here because I don't, you know, I mean, what's a good fee for that? 1%, 2%? I mean, because I don't know what I'm doing. How many of you have ever thought about investing before and said, I don't know what I'm doing? You sit through the presentation and, you, and you're like, yeah, this sounds good, but I don't know what I'm doing. How about when you choose a partner for the rest of your life? It should probably be a knowledge and all discernment kind of thing, right? Probably not just a, hey, she looks good. <laughs> That's probably, not, you know, when we see people do that, we're like, whoa, hey, you know. Get to know her. Yeah, I'm glad you think she's pretty. I'm glad you think he's handsome. I'm glad you think he's funny or whatever it is. But, hey, you know, let's slow down a little bit. Do you know this about him? And do you know this about him? And, do you, and think about the questions we're asking. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. And then we start to ask, well, have you thought about this? And have you thought about that? Discernment, discernment, discernment. You treat a serious disease. Knowledge and discernment. You go to war, knowledge and discernment. 
So this is serious stuff when we use these words, and yet here Paul throws it in here with the word love. And again, I'll emphasize to you, we live in a culture where love is supposed to be completely undiscerning. We're supposed to just not think about it too much. It's okay. It's all right. But that's not what Paul wishes for the Philippians. He wants these people to grow in love, but he wants them to do it knowing something and discerning what they love. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us that love is dangerous. Um, and I think if you thought, thought through this, you'd come to the same conclusion practically in your life. Love is dangerous. In 2 Timothy, Paul describes a man who shipwrecked his faith and walked away from the Lord, and he, he describes Demas as, Demas has abandoned me in love with the present world. Um, in 1 Timothy, we get the warning about the love of money, and we see it practically in people like the rich young ruler. We get warnings about love consistently throughout Scripture, and it's not going to take much thought for you to realize that whatever you love and whatever you put your affection towards is going to have a lot of power in your life. It's going to affect your behavior. It's going to affect your thinking. It's going to affect your schedule. Before long, it's going to start to dominate if you love it. So Paul's hope for the Philippians is that they will love and grow in their love, but as they grow in their love, that they'll be careful and thoughtful. And I think the knowledge here is a knowledge of God's Word. And I think the discernment here is a thoughtful application of God's Word, what they know about God, what they know of God, applied thoughtfully to whatever it is in life, that is pulling at their affections. And I would say this is very important for all of us. We have things all around us pulling at us for devotion and for affection. When you feel that, the encouragement is, well, just stop loving. No, the, the encouragement is, no, love, but with knowledge of who God is because you're, you are his child. You're his man, his woman. Know who God is and thoughtfully apply that to your passions, to your affections. And even in the relationships where it's right and proper to pour out your love, apply that pouring out of your love in someone's life thoughtfully and discerningly with knowledge. Fourth observation here in verse 10 that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. And this is where we get the drawn out part of this here, that you may approve the things that are excellent. Excellent meaning worthy. Worthy. In other words, if you are not carefully, thoughtfully applying the word of God to the affections and to the things in this world that are pulling at you for love and devotion, then you will love something that is not worthy of, of your love. You will devote yourself to something that is not excellent. This world is full of things that would, that would love to have your devotion. <laughs> um. There are all kinds of people who would love for you to be a fan, an investor, a hobbyist, someone who fits their niche, their, their category of marketing. I, I was in uh, California. I didn't write this down, but this is coming to mind now. I was in California um, earlier this summer, and I uh, got dragged to a dinner because I was traveling with somebody, and he had a friend who lived out there, and a guy older than me, more established, and... Um, and so he said, hey, will you come along? And so I, he was meeting his friend's um, girlfriend who he was going to marry. Um, I don't know if they were officially engaged or not. But anyway, they're meeting for the first time. So I'm just tagged along for this. And I'm like, okay, you know, <laughs> free meal. Uh, I got nothing better to do. I'm traveling in California. Okay. So I go along. And I'm just, and, and thankfully it's not a, uh, incumbent upon me to carry the conversation. So I'm just listening. And, and these are two interesting people uh, that I'm, I'm listening to, to talk about. And it turns out 
Um, the guy um, was just coming out of a job that he took where he was um, working in a company that basically did kind of what YouTube does by making videos online, but it was like a subscription service and a small subscription service, and I started to get worried about what was coming, but he said it was like a small uh, subscription service, and it was for people who were really into hunting and fishing. And I thought, how can you make money doing that? You know, <laughs> but that's me. I, if you didn't know, I'm not into hunting or fishing. I, I like to fish and basically just sit there and eat snacks while the, the things that floats around in the water. I, I'm, not, I'm not worried if I don't catch anything. It's still, still fine time for me. But apparently there are lots and lots of people who will pay lots and lots of money to see videos made by people you and I have never heard of before about hobbyist stuff, hunting and fishing. And his whole career was built upon trying to find those people, hobbyist hunters and fishermen. And I thought, wow, that's really, I would just sat there listening to him go on about this. And I thought, I can't believe that there was any money to be made in this whatsoever. But there was, because the world is full of people and things to fall in love with. It's full of it. And Paul is saying, you have to be careful. I want you to love, but I want you to love with the knowledge of who God is and what he's called you to. And I want you to love discerningly. And I want you to be careful, verse 10, that you approve things that are worthy of your love. That when you give yourself to something, that it's worthy of, of this effort, of this approval. Um... So I'll ask you the question that I think Paul has in mind. What is worthy of your love? Yeah, I could ask, what do you love? But the real question that I have is, is it worthy of your love? And I'll, I'll warn you, this is something that's really easy to evaluate looking at somebody else. It's really hard to evaluate looking at yourself. It's really tough because when you look at somebody else, you see what they're spending their time on, what they're spending their money on, what they just talk to you about all the time when they see you. I mean, it just pours out of them. When, when someone loves something, it just kind of comes out of them, right? So it's easy to say, oh, well, I, you know, I know what that person is. But, but that, that's, not, that's not the tough question. <laughs> what do you love? And is it worthy of that love? and devotion that you've given it. It's a depressing and frustrating life loving things that are not worthy of it. It's a sad existence loving something that wasn't worthy of it. Fifth and final observation here, and we'll close. Second part of verse 10 and 11. Take those two together here. Um, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's just pause there. That you may be sincere. That's an interesting word to use here. You know what I think Paul has in mind? I think what he has in mind in the context of the verse is, if you are not careful in what you love, and if you love things that are unworthy of your love, you may say, I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that may not be sincere. That may not be the honest evaluation. He wants them to approach what they devote themselves to and how they devote themselves to those things with knowledge and discernment so that they approve things that are worthy. And then when they stand before the Lord on the day of Jesus Christ, they be found to be sincere in their professions of faith and love and devotion to God. That you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Again, this points to the danger of love of loving without knowledge or without discernment of that knowledge. 
If you love, and this is the biblical testimony again, whether it's the love of money or love of the world or love of a man or a woman, whatever it is, if you love what is unworthy of love, it will bring about sin. It will bring about wrong behavior. It will bring about behavior that falls short of God's glory in your life. So be sinc- it wants, he wants them to be sincere. He wants them to be without offense. Again, this, we covered this already. This is a forward-looking book, and it says here, on the day of Christ. We, we had a whole sermon on that one. I don't, I'm not going to revisit it now, but this is looking towards the future. That's where the destination here is. The return of Jesus Christ, when our eternity begins. Um, Verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. If you love what is worthy, if you do so with knowledge, discerning carefully, it won't result in sin, it will result in fruit. And, and it will result in the good things that are accompanying righteousness in your life. So it will have a positive effect. You will see evidence of that. What you love will have a deterministic effect on how you live. Now that should need no explanation whatsoever. What you love will have practical effect undeniable practical effect on how you live your life. And if you love what is worthy of love, you'll experience the fruits of righteousness in your life. But if you love what is unworthy of love, you'll deal with sin. And it's a dangerous situation. You might have offense, as it's summarized here in this verse. Um, And then the, the final part here being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of, and this is where you can always, if you ever want to do personal evaluation, this is where you can always do the fill in a blank, right here. To the glory and praise of what? Of Reggie? Of something else? The end of... What are, why are you doing, what is the, 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 the end positive result of whatever your efforts are flowing to? If, if whatever you're spending your time and your energy and your affection and your devotion and your thought and what keeps you awake at night that you're thinking about and what gets you up in the morning that you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this. What, whatever it is that you are spending yourself on, if you could take it to its most positive final conclusion in your life. So, you know, we got people getting ready to start fall sports, you know, and I could pick several fall sports. I could pick football, uh, golf, volleyball. I, I could pick lots of different fall sports. We have people starting to, to cross country. If you're running cross country right now and you're pouring yourself into that, just ask that question. What is the most positive end result that I could get from that? Could win a race, break a record, win a competition as a team, set a personal goal, whatever it is. What is the top end result? Okay, now fill in the blank. To the glory and praise of who? That's a, that's a good litmus test. That's not the only thing you should think about ever, but that's a good test. To the glory and praise of who? We need to write in there daily in our lives when we do this evaluation because you're like, well, man, that's really hard because I think that a kid should be able to try really hard at cross country and set goals. And if he makes those goals, you know, is he being selfish? If he does, what does that mean? What does it look like? How would you, pastor, how would you even run cross country that way? That's the point. Answering those questions is the point. That's what requires the discernment. How do I do this to the glory and praise of God? If you can't come up with some way to answer that question, you probably shouldn't be doing it. It's incumbent upon you to apply what you know about God and to do it in a discerning way 
and to daily fill in the blank, my life is going to be lived today to the glory and praise of God. Not me. On the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? I'm not huge on memorizing catechisms, but for what it's worth, I think this very first one is a good one to memorize. What is the chief end of man? What is man's chief or principal or top priority? What is the purpose of man? Have you ever tried to answer that question before? We'll throw woman in too, okay? Not trying to have that debate this morning. Man or woman? What is the chief end of man or woman? The Westminster Catechism replies back. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's funny how life brings opportunities to speak to that. I, I was walking in from uh, lunch. Tony and I went out to lunch on Friday. Walking in from lunch back into the warehouse. Right now we've got 30 temporary employees in the warehouse. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's pretty crazy right now. And I'm walking in and I'm walking up the steps and I see a couple employees surrounded by a whole bunch of people I've never seen before in my life. And I'm walking in and I'm, I'm saying, hello guys, yeah, this is a scary looking group and how you doing? And just talking small talk and doing what I'm I tr trying to do at work, which is, you know, help people smile and can get to the day. I'm, I don't have to boss them around so much anymore, so I just get to try to smile and move on through the day with them. And, and I get into the building, and I think, okay, you know, they seem okay, happy at lunch. None of them seem like they're miserable or ready to get in a fist fight or anything. That sounds like good. So I walk into the warehouse, and someone follows me and says, hey. I think he said, hey, you. Well, I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know what's coming. I turn around. And it's this gentleman, um, and he said, I have a question for you. And I'm thinking, all right, what do I remember about benefits and hiring dates and everything else? And he said, somebody told me that you're a pastor. And I said, oh, it's going to be one of those conversations. <laughs> and then I'm looking at the clock thinking, do I have time to finish this before this gentleman's supposed to clock back in? And uh, so, uh, but anyway, he said, if God is perfect, how could he create imperfect people? Now I was ready for that one. I've answered that question before. So, I mean, I was ready. And we dove right into it, and I gave him a, a I thought was a very clear, simple answer. And, and, and he did. He said, that's the best answer I've heard. And he's talking to me about it, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And, but, and then he said, he said but, uh, but what is, you know, perfect? What is a perfect man? And I said, well, you know, and Westminster, I said, when God created Adam and Eve, I can tell you what purpose God had in creating him. He created Adam and Eve to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And you know, in the Bible, we read about God walking in the garden with Adam. And they had fellowship. Adam knew his creator. The creator knew Adam. And I mean, I, we just rolled straight into this. It just rolled right through. If we say, what is the purpose of your life? It's through Jesus to be adopted into the family of God. And then to experience this relationship that God had in the beginning with his creation, whereby we glorify God with what we do with the works of our hands, and we enjoy him. I know to some of you that sounds so, so pie-in-the-sky, idealistic Christianity. How could I enjoy God? You can. I enjoy God. I don't always enjoy the things involved with with serving him, some of them are difficult and painful, but I enjoy God. That's why I sing to God. That's why I serve God. I enjoy him. C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and I'll end with this one. He said, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And we were. We were made for a world where we have fellowship with our Creator. Where we're not dealing with sin, and we're not dealing with death, and we're not dealing with failure. And as Christians now in this world, I can enjoy my Creator as I look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. I can glorify God 
who has adopted me into his family and will bring me into fellowship with him forever and ever. What is your chief goal in life? Wouldn't it be so much more simpler if you could just state, you know what, my goal is to glorify God however he lets me, whatever he's called me to, and to just enjoy him. So I love with discernment, I give myself to things thoughtfully because, again, my goal is to glorify him, to know him, to know what he has said, and to live my life in a way that glorifies him and to enjoy fellowship with him. That seems like a much more freeing goal, a much more burdensome, free way of living. That almost sounds like Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your soul. That's a better way to live. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, now as we come before you, my prayer is that there are new Christians among us, that on the heels of last week, there are people who have taken the initial steps down the road of placing their faith in you and surrendering the controls of their life to you and honoring you. That's my prayer, Father, by faith that your Holy Spirit is working and that there are new Christians here. They may not even call themselves Christians yet, but their faith in you has begin to sprout and like a plant growing in a field, they're growing even before they're identified as what they are. And I pray, Father, that messages like this will come to the hearts of new Christians and seasoned veterans. And that we'll be thoughtful about what we do with the hours in the day. That we'll have a mindset and approach to life that will free us from many of the enslaving mindsets that are in the world around us that for us we will know only fellowship and a life directed by you that will enjoy your presence trust you lean not on our own understandings and allow you to direct it's in jesus name that i pray amen